Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So we've been talking about Focus uh, Foundation talking about the foundations for our church. We've been talking about our core values, what make us who we are. Does anybody remember what the first core core value was? Does anyone recall? A safe place specifically for questions. Very good. Yep, that was exactly right. We believe that that the church should be the best place to ask the most important questions, and that does indeed mean safe. Uh, What was the second week? What was the second core value? To make the journey easier for one another by our kind word, our simple service, our stewardship of, of grace. And we talked just a little bit about what it means to be a steward of God's grace. We're actually going to talk more about that tonight. Tonight is in some ways, it's the, um, it's the meat of the answer to the question of why we focus on small groups. It is true that small groups make it easier to be a place you can ask questions. It is true that small group, small communities where people get to know each other are the best place to really make the journey easier for one another. But tonight uh, is really what, at least in my own journey, led me to see discipleship very differently than I used to see it. So I've been a pastor for about 30 years, more than that. And during that time, my goal has always been discipleship. But if you ask me, you know, 30 years ago and 20 years ago and 15 years ago and 10 years ago what discipleship was, I don't think I could have given you as clear an answer as I feel like I could today. Um, and I think that what I saw in Ephesians, we're going to go through some, some Ephesians, and what I saw in the book of Ephesians, um, as well as my own church experience and other pastors that I was talking with and coaching at the time, really changed my view on discipleship. And that is the heart of why we do things the way we do it. So we're just going to walk through that. Some of the verses that really changed my view on things take a little bit of time to see what discipleship is. We, we, we've, from the very beginning, have said our focus, even as Pam said, our, our focus is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Our focus is to teach other people to do that. Our focus is discipleship, which is that great commission of teaching everyone to obey everything that Christ commanded, those initial apostles on down, and, and to teach people to follow Jesus, not to follow me, not to follow you, but to follow Jesus. And for that to be what we create as a community of people who are being discipled and following Jesus. And so that's, that's been our goal. What's interesting is in Ephesians chapter 4, which is where we're going to start, um, and we're going to do something interesting. We're actually going to take a, 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 a passage backwards. Um, this is not necessarily how I suggest you always read scripture, but today we're going to start with the conclusion because I want that to sort of whet our appetite to see, oh, this is where we're supposed to end up. What is it that's supposed to lead us here? And so we start <laughs> with Ephesians 4. 14 through 16, and it says this. Paul says, then, so we know right away it's a conclusion, right? Something's going to happen, and then this is the conclusion, and this is what he says. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. 
in a lot of ways, what Paul is getting at here is that picture of what maturity looks like, right? If, if the goal is discipleship, for each of us to grow up into Christ, for our community to become somehow the, the reflection of Christ, this is his description of what it looks like. And that's what he says. He says, we will grow as a community to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Paul says our job, what he expects, his goal, his anticipation for a church is that that church will become in every respect the mature body of Christ. That's a huge statement. He goes on in passages we're not going to look at as much today. You can go through all of Ephesians. You'll see these passages over and over. He goes on to talk about how the goal of discipleship is that we will be filled to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ as a community. And I like that phrase, the whole measure of the fullness, because you think about fullness, and that's one thing, but the whole measure of the fullness is another. I think one way to think of that is a swimming pool. Yeah. Oh, I think one way to look at that is a swimming pool. So if you, if you have a swimming pool, if you go swimming at the pool, it's, re- it's really never full all the way because they're smart enough to know if they fill a swimming pool all the way up, then as soon as somebody gets in it, they're going to lose water, right? So a swimming pool always has space. So you would say in popular, you know, conversation, common conversation, you would just say, is that swimming pool full or not? You're really just asking, does it have water in it? And, and the difference between full and empty is just that. There's water in it. There's not water in it. But if somebody asked you, is that swimming pool filled to the full measure of its water? Well, then you'd have a different answer. You'd say, no, it's not. It's got some left. And that's where Paul says, not just that we should be filled with Christ, but that as a community, we're to be filled to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. And he says this in Colossians. He says this in Ephesians. He actually really says it over and over, this idea that as a community, we are to be as full a reflection of the body of Christ, as full a reflection of who Christ is as can possibly be given. And I think for Paul, it's important to note, and we'll see this more as we go, but I'll just throw this in as an aside. It's important to note that this is only in the context of a community that this is possible. No single one of us can be filled to the full measure of Christ. No single one of us can reflect all the aspects of Christ. But as a community, we can. And he seems to say this is the goal. This is what discipleship leads to, is that we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of whom who is the head, that is Christ, and that the whole body will be joined and held together and that grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So somehow the church in discipleship is building itself. I like the other aspects of it. He says, he says, we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. I think when it comes to people who teach us, I think when it comes to, and that's just not in the church, that's everywhere, right? Maybe you listen to talk radio. Maybe you watch, you know, uh, celebrity gurus on TV. Maybe you watch the news. Everybody's teaching you. Everybody has a philosophy and everybody has an idea, you know, whether it's in the grocery store, in the schools or wherever it is. Very often people are sharing with you their understanding of truth. And he, he, I think he's saying there's two different kinds of problems here. One is every wind of teaching. There's just sort of a, nobody's ill-intentioned, but there's, a, there's just a fad. There's a fashion. Things become popular, right? The wind blows in and everybody goes here for a while and then the wind blows out. And then the wind blows another way and everybody goes here for a while. And this is the kind of thing that we look back historically and we can see where the winds have been bad, right? And we're like, that was weird, that people thought this was okay, and now they don't. But what we miss often is we, we, we fall into what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, the idea that because we're later in time than those stupid people who believe stupid things in the past, that we're already smarter. 
and that therefore we don't have any of those wings that are faddish. Well, they will. 10, 20 years from now, someone's going to look back and go, this is what that culture believes? That's really weird. And, and I think Paul's saying, there's, you know, you just get blown back and forth all day. Unless we're a mature body. Unless we, are, we're, we have a certain stability. But there's another group of people, there's another teaching, which isn't just well-intentioned, but just kind of fashionable. There are actually people out there who are deceitfully scheming to fool you who are being cunning and crafty and trying to lead you away. And you might ask, why would people do that? And I don't know the answer to that question. Now, sometimes you can discover the answer. You know, I think, uh, for example, um, I was going to say not naming names, but I don't see any reason not to name this particular name. Um, I think there's a really uh, badly intentioned uh, bad person out there named Alex Jones who spent a long time trying to convince people that... Uh, these school shootings weren't real. And whenever he ran into parents who claimed they had kids who died there, he was mean and cruel to them and said that they were just actors and weren't real. And, well, he's been sued and lost a lot of lawsuits at this point because it's, they can prove that he not only, not only can they prove uh, pretty conclusively that he was wrong, that these school shootings actually happened, but they can prove also pretty conclusively that he knew that and continued to speak these falsehoods. And the reason that he did it is pretty obvious. He made millions and millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, he made lots and lots of money. And I do think there is a tendency to overlook that in the conspiracy theory world, that there, there are a lot of sources that make a lot of money by promoting certain false ideas and teachings. And they are malicious. It also happens in the church. There are pastors who enjoy the power, enjoy the control. There are evangelists who enjoy the power of the control. And so they, they teach things that aren't really what the doctrine of Christ is. There's also the fashions and fads in the church, things that seem right now and later we realize don't have a history to them. But the point of all this is that Paul says the answer to this is discipleship. The answer to all this is that as a community, we grow up, we have a certain stability and that's the goal. So as you look at this picture of maturity, there's a lot here that I think you can say we would want to be. I want to be in a community where there's stability, where you aren't always wrestling with, well, do I believe, you know, is this right or is this right? There's some stability. I think, I love this, speaking the truth in love. I want to be among people who speak the truth in love. I'm tired of people who speak the truth in rudeness and then just claim because they're speaking the truth, that's all that matters. I really love the idea of speaking the truth in love. I like the idea that people care enough about me that they'll speak the truth, even if it's not necessarily what I want to hear, but they're doing it in love. And this is kind of community he's talking about and where we all grow together. There's a unity and there's a stability and there's a strength. And he says, then this will happen. So the question becomes, when will this happen? What will cause this? What will help us to no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching? And what's interesting is if we just stop here and we don't read the rest of the verses, you walk into any group of pastors and you ask them that question, they'll probably all tell you two things. We all have an uneasy feeling that we've done a bad job of this in the last couple decades. We have this uneasy feeling because we do see a lot of people who don't have stability and who are blown here and there by every wind of doctrine and teaching. And there is this uncomfortable feeling among many pastors that if they're, if they're humble and honest, there's an uncomfortable feeling that we might have missed the mark a little bit. If they're not humble and honest, there's an uncomfortable feeling that everybody else has missed the mark a little bit. But either way, we feel like as a whole, we haven't done a great job. 
um, it, at discipleship. But then from there, you ask the same group of pastors, so what is it? What is the crisis? What is it that hasn't happened? And they'll give you a whole lot of answers to what comes before the them. If we do these programs in these ways and these things, if we teach with this kind of fire and this kind of passion, if we nail down whether it's expository teaching or, 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 or topical teaching or, or whether if, if we can nail down who's allowed to do the teaching, if we, if we can kind of get these things right, if we, can, if we can have the right kind of video presentation, if we can have the right kind of churches, if we can have the right kind of courage, you'll get a lot of ideas that people will give you that say then it will lead to this. But obviously, the really important question is, what does Paul say? <laughs> what comes before this? What leads to discipleship? And this is why I want to back up. So this is verses 14 through 16. So let's go back to verse 11 and see what he says leads to this position of maturity and stability of a community that is loving and truthful and mature and reflecting Christ in every way. This is what he says. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So he's talking about the same thing, right? Not only do we know it because it is the verses just before, but he even says the same thing. The whole point is that the body of Christ will be built up. That's what he concluded the last verse. So that's where we're headed. He says to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There's that idea of that full swimming pool, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then he says, we will no longer be infants blown here and there by every wind and every doctrine and the deceitful scheming of men, but instead we'll be stable and we'll speak the truth in love and we'll grow up. So what does he say here that leads to that? Well, he says a couple of things we can just see really quick. He says that Christ himself gave certain people, gave. It's an interesting phrase, right? Gave. Who did he give them to? You know who he gave them to? The church, the community, their purpose, their gift to the church. So he gave certain people as a gift to the community. And what's their job? It's to equip people to do what? To serve. So if we kind of walk through this backwards, if we go through this to kind of work from the end to what the, how we get there, we notice here again that the end is becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, right? That's where we end. And then those next verses that we left out describe what maturity looks like. Everybody with me? Okay. So he says that the end is to become mature, but the goal, what leads us there to becoming mature, is that the church reaches what? A unity in faith and knowledge. Right? He says, we reach a unity in faith and knowledge, and then we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then he goes on to expand on what that means. Unity in faith and knowledge is really important because unity of faith and knowledge is not the same thing as groupthink without disagreement. Unfortunately, this comes to another core value we'll talk about in a few weeks, where we actually honor disagreement. <laughs> but the truth is that there is something that we're united around, but it doesn't mean we all think the same. And it's interesting because even the words faith and knowledge, we actually flip them from the way Paul says them. If, if I, most of the time, and it's okay, it's just a cultural language difference, but it is important to understand the way Paul says it. If I talk to typical people in a church and I say, how would you define knowledge? They would, if I say, in regards to your Christian walk, what do you think your knowledge is that you're supposed to grow in? And they would say, well, the doctrines and the teachings and, and the knowledge of scripture. And if I said, what does it mean to grow in your faith? They would say, well, that means trusting God more 
and kind of walking with him in independence. What's interesting is those are both true marks of where we're supposed to go, but they're exactly opposite of the way Paul means it. When Paul says knowledge, he means intimate, relational knowledge of God. So we should grow in unity of our intimate, relational knowledge of God. That we should be together learning more about God, not just about God, but getting to know God together about who he is. There's an interesting verse, another interesting verse, where Paul says that, I pray that you would know together with all the saints the incredible love of God. It's like we can only learn about the height and depth and width of the love of God together as a community. I think that's interesting. And so it's the same thing here. We're supposed to grow in our unity of relationship with God. We should be all growing together to know him better and more intimately. Now, interestingly, the word faith here is more akin to what we thought knowledge was in the previous scenario. When Paul talks about the faith, he's talking about, in this kind of context, he's usually talking about the teachings of the apostles. What, is the, what, are, the, what are the concepts that make up our faith? So he is saying both those things that you thought he was saying. He just might be saying, flipping the, the roles. But he is saying that. He's saying that as a community, we should grow in the understanding of the information about the gospel. And we should also be growing in our intimacy with God. And that if those two things are happening, then what happens? We become mature. Okay, so we've walked back a little bit. In other words, though, before we go back any further, in other words, the Great Commission, right? I mean, when Jesus stood there and said to the apostles, teach everybody everything that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, he's hitting both ends. Teach everybody the things I told you and teach them what it means that I am with you. There's the relationship so discipleship. So he's just rephrasing the Great Commission another way. So this is what we want to do as a church. So this is really important. So the question becomes, what is it that leads us to reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature? And he says what leads us there is that we are all built up. All right? But what builds us up? What builds us up? Well, it turns out the church builds itself up, which is an interesting statement. I don't know other tools which do this. Like a hammer doesn't create itself as a hammer. The closest I think we can get would be like artificial intelligence, right? Which maybe if it, ex if it exists, if it ever exists, there's some argument about whether, whether it ever will. But artificial intelligence can kind of create its own intelligence, right? As it moves forward. And the church builds itself into the church. But even that, how does that happen? Who's responsible for building the church? Who's responsible for creating this unity of faith and knowledge? Who, how does it happen? What's the process? And the interesting thing is Paul gives us the process piece by piece. But if we keep walking through it backwards, we'll see where the crucial elements are and not get out of place. So if we just take one more step backwards, the question becomes, what builds up the body of Christ to this unity of faith and knowledge? And what is the immediate answer right before that? It's easy to skip over it. It's works of service done by people. It's that simple. This is what's weird. Discipleship is simply works of service done by people. It doesn't seem right to us. We tend to think of discipleship as needing to teach instructional things. But remember, it's not only instructional things. It's also intimate knowledge and, and growing in our relationship with God. And he says here that the, what builds the church up is the people, everybody, Doing works of service. Now, we're going to get into what a works of service is, because that's an important question, right? What does that mean? But before we do, let me encourage you not to go too far astray. It means pretty much what you think it means, 
<laughs> right? A work of service is something you do to serve somebody else. It's not really more complicated than that. It's more powerful than that, but it's not more complicated than that. And so there is something that Paul says that as people do works of service for each other, it leads to maturity, period. I just think this is so important because we don't think it's that simple. When you speak a word of encouragement to somebody or you, you, know, you, you, you bring somebody a meal when they're struggling or you go visit them at the hospital or you give them a phone call to encourage them or you edit a paper for them or you build a cabinet for them or you loan them your car or you make them a meal. It's just the, there's all sorts of options, right? You pray for them. Any of these things that are works of service that are done are discipleship. They're not just something you do along the way. They're not even proof of discipleship. They are the process of discipleship. We do not think this way. I think there's all sorts of evidence the early church did. Acts 2.42 tells us that what made the church the church was that everybody had love for one another and shared everything in common. And if someone had need, someone else provided the need. That's it. That's the basis. And what does it say God did when that was happening in the church? Added to their number daily, those who were being saved. Now, we can back up another step because it's worthwhile. How do the people know to do the works of service? How do they know what the works of service are? How do they know they should do the works of service? How are they put in a position to do the works of service? Who facilitates the doing of these works of service? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It says very specifically that whatever a prophet is doing, whatever an evangelist is doing, whatever a pastor is doing, whatever a teacher is doing, whatever the apostles are doing, it comes down to equipping people to do the works of service. It's really important to understand. We jump sometimes and say the, the work of discipleship is the work of the prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and apostles, but that's not what Paul says. Paul says their job is to get everyone else to disciple. My job is to get you to do the discipleship. <laughs> now, in doing my job, I am also giving you a work of service. It's not totally separate. I am also involved in discipleship. But it's such a far cry from the way we've seen discipleship in the past where discipleship is the responsibility of teachers or pastors or evangelists or prophets or apostles. But that's not what this says. It says that their job is to equip everyone else to do the works of service which lead to the maturity of the saints. It's not their job to do the works of service. It's not their job to build the church. It's their job to equip the saints to build the church itself. I have said from the very beginning, those of you who have been with Focus from the beginning know that I keep saying, we are building this special community. I'm not building it. There's a lot of ways you can speak of a church. It's fine. Common parlance slang. Somebody wants to say, this is Dave McGill's church. It's kind of okay. Usually I bristle and we'll correct them, but it's kind of okay. I understand. It's just kind of slang, right? In one sense, it is. I started it. It's much better to say it's, your, it's our church. It's your church. That's actually not far enough. We're going to get there in a second because there is one more step backwards to go. Who is responsible for creating these prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and pastors? Oh, so the whole thing actually starts with Jesus giving a gift to the community. And so Jesus gives the parts, and if the parts do what, they, what he's given them to do, then discipleship happens. This is the weird thing. 
I think we have kind of missed discipleship in some ways. And yet the, what the simplicity of it is that Paul says, if we simply be the community that Jesus has called us to be, discipleship will happen. We, it's hard for us to believe things work that way. <laughs> we feel like we have to do so much more. <laughs> but it really is it's simple. Jesus is responsible at the beginning and he's the goal at the end. Do you see that? Christ gives what needs to be given. Then there's this process that happens. And then at the end, who's glorified and who do we become the reflection of? Jesus. That makes sense. He should know who to give to make that happen because that's the goal. So discipleship happens at the each member serving one another level. I 100% believe that is what discipleship is. I don't believe that's only what it is in our church. I believe that's what it is in every church. I believe discipleship does happen in most churches. We just don't know where it's happening sometimes. We identify the wrong places. Discipleship begins when Jesus gives the equippers. And so it's interesting. Now you can go through and I can just ask you a really simple question. Seems simple. But now you look at this and you realize there's a lot of ways to answer this question. The question is this. In a church, who is responsible for discipleship? You are. Is that what you're saying? You're correct. Good answer. Yes. So am I. And so is Jesus. You see that, don't you? I mean, I love that. You, in one sense, you're like, oh, I am. You know, I think, I think sometimes we got a fail base. We're like, oh, the prophets are. We're like, no, that's not right. I am. But if you really dig back, Jesus is. It's his job. Which then makes a lot more sense when he says that he's the head of the church. If he's not responsible for it, isn't that weird to have him be in authority but not responsible? Well, he is. Now, we're each responsible for each part doing its work. But it's Jesus who puts the parts together. And, so, and our biggest problem is we get so tangled up doing things he didn't call us to do that we miss out on the very simple service that he's called for each of us to do. But Paul gives us a little bit more understanding. So, I, I, so in one sense, what does it look like? What do these works of service look like? Well, you can go back to our previous core value. I think at its basic level, it is as simple as a kind word, a simple act of service. That's it. It, doesn't, it isn't often more complicated than that. Now, you might think, but how can my kind word or my simple act of service really teach someone about Christ? Well, let me ask you. Did Christ ever speak kind words? Did he ever do simple acts of service? But you say, but how can my one kind word reflect all of Jesus' kind words? And I say, it can't. That's why Paul says, together, we reflect the fullness of Christ. You will never speak wise enough words to reflect the fullness of Christ. You will never serve purely enough to reflect the service of Christ. But together, there might just be enough kind words and simple acts of service. And you know who's responsible for making sure there are? Jesus. <laughs> yeah, sometimes Jesus is the answer in churches still. Paul gives us a little bit more, though. This is where a lot of this comes together for me. I really want to show you this because this is amazing. In Ephesians 4, 7, so we're just backing up a little more. In Ephesians 4, 7, he says this, For to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now, this is an interesting verse, and I just want to stipulate something and be really clear. We can go through all the discussion of this another time. You can discuss this in your groups, but I just want to give you simplicity for right now. I want to give you some clarity so we don't go off base. This is not talking about salvation. Because in salvation, there's no apportioning it. It's not like you got more grace for your salvation than I did. 
I mean, that might be because you're worse than I am. No, see, that's not true. We are all equally, you know, James says, when you break the law, you're a lawbreaker. There isn't like, well, some are lawbreakers and some are more lawbreakers. We're all lawbreakers. Now, it may be that in the scheme of judgment, because Jesus seems to indicate it, that there are things that are worse than others. And we know that in our interactions with each other. Murdering someone is, in fact, worse than hating someone. But in the scheme of being righteous, it doesn't matter whether you murder someone or hate them. You're still unrighteous. Whether you steal 50 bucks or 5 million bucks has an impact on the people you steal from, but you are a thief either way. And so what, what Paul is not saying here is that each of us got different amounts of grace for our salvation because some of us were closer to God. We were all enemies. We were all despised. We were all repulsive. We were all depraved. But we were all loved enough that God sacrificed his son for us. And so we all need all the grace. (laughs) However, Paul's talking about something else here. And I don't even think here he's talking about quantity. I think he's talking about kind. And he's going to make that clear, but we're going to skip to another verse to see him make that clear. I think what he's talking about is what we talked about last week, a stewardship of grace. There's a lot of places that this comes up in Scripture, so I feel very confident in saying this is what he means here. But what he's talking about is that God gives you a slice of, remember we talked about grace as his power and desire to do good to us. Think of it as his love and his power to bless people. And God gives you a slice of his power and his love in order to bless other people. And that's where he says, each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. I don't even think here it means amount. Like some of, you know, we all think that way. Some people are really talented. Some people are less talented. I've even heard people say that person could, should get saved because he could do a whole lot for the kingdom of God. They haven't read scripture if they think that's how God works. Because Paul specifically says elsewhere, God picks the foolish people of the world to shame the wise. He picks the weak people of the world to shame the strong. He says at one point to the Corinthians, think of who you were when you were first saved. You were nobody. We all know it. <laughs> Well, so it's, it's not quantity. The point here is it's a kind. We've each been given a specific slice of grace to do a specific thing, specific gifts. We call these uh, spiritual gifts. And these make sense when you think of them as stewardships of grace. Paul says in Romans, he says this, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. I think in this particular context, he's using faith and grace very similarly. That we have a certain slice of grace and faith together. Because they work together. We won't go into that right now. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage and give encouragement, if it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. It's interesting. If you just read this passage without any of the influence of our historical traditions coming up till now, you would not assume that Paul is intending to give you a comprehensive list of spiritual gifts. I really don't think you would. The most natural way to read this is that Paul is giving examples. And the point is, there may be an infinite number of spiritual gifts because your slice of grace is your slice of grace given to you by God. 
they do often fall in categories of teaching and service, and that's fine. I think these are examples. I love the fact that Paul even begins this whole passage by saying, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you. What does that mean? It means my ability to speak to you with power and love, my ability to write these things which are going to be used forever in the church, are because that's the slice of grace God's given me for you. And in the same way, you have a slice of grace which is just as important to give to others. And the exhortation is, don't sit on it. <laughs> right? That's the exhortation. Whatever it is, do it and do it big. But don't don't think you're you're yeah. better. You're you're yeah. you're your slice, you're, your slice your and everybody else's slice all come together to show the grace of God in all its glory. Yeah, don't think you're more highly than you are. Also, I think he means here, don't think that your power comes just from you. You've you've blessed someone. God gave you that slice of grace to do that with. I also think in, a, in an interesting sort of way, I've known people who think more highly of themselves, and it comes out this way. I don't have anything from God. Because if you really think of what they're saying, they're saying, I am so strong in my ineptitude that God can't use me. <laughs> really? That's a pretty brave statement. <laughs> Tell that to Peter, who failed over and over and over and ended up being so important to the church. Tell that to Paul, who killed Christians before God got hold of him and, and used him for the church. Tell that to all the thousands and millions and hundreds of millions of people throughout the history of our world who just did what God called them to do and changed their culture and their world because of it. When you withhold your gift, you're not filling your stewardship. Let me give you one picture of this. I, I really like this, and I think it's one parents can relate to, but it's a, I think it's a good picture of the way we should think of our spiritual gifts and our stewardship of grace. You know, when I, I have a bunch of kids, most of you know that, and when they were younger, um, it was very frequently that mom would have a Mother's Day or a birthday, and so they would want to get something for mom, but being six years old, they didn't make a lot of money in their jobs yet. And so I would take them to the store, and we would buy something for mom for them to give to mom. And you know how that works. Usually you go, and you're like, what do you want to get mom? And they're like, I want to get mom a Barbie. You're like, but do you think mom will really like a Barbie? Like, yeah, mom will love a Barbie. <laughs> and so, you know, it's from their hearts. So you're like, that's fine. Mom will probably like a Barbie. And it's a buck or whatever. You know, it's a fake Barbie. It's not a real Barbie. So, we, you know, we get, we get the, uh, the, the, the cheap rate dollar store Barbie and we bring it home. And then occasionally, not often, but occasionally, one of my kids would be like, I don't want to give it to mom. You bought it for me. I'm like, I didn't buy it for you. I bought it for you to give to mom. And, and it becomes really ridiculous. If you buy a gift for somebody to give to someone else and they think it's a gift for themselves, there's a real disconnect here. But I think this is Paul's exhortation to us. As God has given you a slice of grace, guess what? It's not for you. Your grace for salvation, that's for you. <laughs> but your slice of grace to bless other people is, in, is specifically given to you to bless other people. It's a stewardship. It's not an ownership. So when you don't use it, it's like one of my kids saying, you bought this for mom, but I'm going to keep it for myself. It doesn't make any sense. There's no point to it. First Peter, Peter just lays it out very specifically. He, he, this is where we get the phrase stewardship of grace. He says this, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. That fits everything we've been talking about, right? The point of the gifts we're giving is to bless other people. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others 
as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. We've all been given a slice of God's grace. It looks different. The forms are different, as Paul talked about. Every member has their own gift. They're all different. If anyone speaks, they should do so as those who speak the very words of God. If everyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Do you see how this idea of gifting is it's God's power and it's God's love? Not our power and our love. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. This is the stewardship of God's grace. So when we serve each other, when Paul talks about the church is built through works of service, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the actual grace of God flowing through you and through me in specific real acts of service and words. These are the categories we're given throughout Scripture, speaking and serving. So when we serve each other, we're actually discipling with the power and love of God. That's why it makes a difference. It's not just an act of service. It is an act of service with power and love that makes a difference. And we believe that every believer has such a gift, that Paul speaks that everyone who has accepted the gospel receives the Holy Spirit, and everyone who receives the Holy Spirit receives a spiritual gift, a grace of God to give. And by the way, I think it can change over time. I don't know how exactly to describe it, but I think God can give you the grace that is needed at a moment for someone else at that moment. I think there are patterns, and I think it's okay to recognize, yeah, when I teach, there tends to be power in it, so that's probably a spiritual gift. But I think it's also good to recognize that sometimes it's something that isn't in a list anywhere, but it sure seems to have blessed somebody. Every believer has such a gift and has such a stewardship. And I want to be clear, we appreciate every unbeliever in our church who seeks to love and, and seeks to bless people, and we believe God can work through that. But we desire for your sake that you would come to know the Lord, but frankly, I also desire for the community's sake, because then it will come with more power and more love. So we go back to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Just to recap, you can kind of see how this all gets put together now. He says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Their job is to equip the people for these works of service, these stewardships of grace, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Titus 2, 11 through 14. When I was coaching pastors, this is a verse I started challenging them with. I would read him this verse and I would say, what does this mean for your ministry? Because it says this amazing thing. It says, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed one, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. When Paul writes Titus, he says, the grace of God which brought us salvation, it is the same grace that is what disciples us. You see that? The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And I would say to pastors, I would say, how often do you act as if it is the law of God or the accountability of the church or the, the, the continuity of the church or the unanimity of your thinking 
or the doctrines of Christ, how often do you think that those are the things that teach people to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions? How often do you think those are the things that teach people to be self-controlled? And I would say to them, what does this verse mean then? How does the grace teach us to live self-controlled lives? How does the grace of God teach us? And I think there's a lot of answers. One is that we should always be in an environment of grace within our churches, remembering that our righteousness is in the blood of Christ only. But I also think that it happens as we each share our stewardship of grace. That is how grace teaches us. That is the mechanism and the process that God uses to teach one another. It is really as simple as sharing your stewardship of grace. That's it. Share your gift and discipleship happens. This is the only necessary thing you must do, and it is necessary for you to do it. You understand, I cannot do that for you, right? I can't share your grace. I don't have your stewardship of grace. I have mine. I can't do it for you. No one can do it for you. We need you. This is what discipleship is. Now, most churches realize this on some level, which is why small groups tend to have an important place in most churches. But I want you to think about this, and we'll wrap up with this and then have communion tonight. In Scripture and in churches, there are basically three models of discipleship. Now, they are in Scripture, so I'm not saying they're bad. Okay? But what's interesting to me, and we're going to talk about these very briefly, what's interesting to me is that the American church emphasizes two of these, and Paul emphasizes the other one. Well, why would that be? Why does the church emphasize the two that Paul doesn't emphasize? I don't know, but if you think about the fact we do that, and then come back to the question among many pastors, which is we're failing at discipleship, could that be why? But Paul says it happens this way, and we say we want to do it this way. And yes, you can point to examples in Scripture where those things exist, but what does Paul emphasize? He emphasizes in Ephesians this idea of everybody shares their stewardship of grace. So let's very briefly talk about these. The first one is one-to-one. -one. So this is like Paul and Timothy, right? It's an example. Or Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas was a one-to-one -one disciple for, for Paul. We know that because everybody else was scared of Paul. Nobody else would hang out with Paul, right? So Barnabas and Paul was pretty much one-to-one. -one. You can kind of see this with Jesus, maybe with John or Peter or James, but let's be honest, he's usually not with one person alone. Maybe you see this with the woman at the well. Right? Jesus is the woman at the well. It's like a one-to-one -one discipleship moment. So you see it in times like that. You don't see that with his apostles very often. They're usually in groups. But basically, it's when one person spends a lot of time in mentorship or instruction of one other person, passing on everything they know about Christ. That's the ideal picture. There may be less ideal, but the ideal picture of one-to-one -one would be one person spends a lot of time in mentorship or instruction of one other person, passing on everything they know about Christ. It's possible that in that context, if you have a really good godly person, they can pass on both faith and knowledge. They can help that person understand the intimate relationship as well as the instructions. We'll get to the drawback for that in a second, but that's what that is at its ideal model. Okay, so then you have one to many. This is... Ah. Okay, then you have one to many. This is all the sermons, right? Jesus on the same mountain, right? Uh, Sermon on the Mount, it's called. Or Paul in Athens, right? This is what we see a lot in churches, right? This is one person speaks and teaches and everybody else sits and listens. Or even in a small group, if it's a teaching small group, if it's a particular kind of small group, you have one person who gives all of the discipleship and everybody else listens. Jesus operates this sometimes this way with his apostles, right? He's the guy, 
he's teaching all of them. It's interesting, this is almost always speaking. Hard to see one to many happening by one guy serving a bunch of people. That doesn't often happen. You maybe could argue Mother Teresa did some of that, but it's usually speaking. So one person shares with a group of people passing on what seems important at the moment to understanding Jesus and who he is and what our responsibility is. Not a bad thing. Let me ask you, when you think about the fullness of Christ and you think about one-to-one and one-to-many, what's drawback, what's lacking here is that it's all coming back to that one person's slice of grace and that one person's idea of what's important. And when you have one-to-one discipleship, even as Paul warns, sometimes you end up with people being a disciple of Paul and Apollos instead of being a disciple of Jesus. Paul even says at one point, I'm really glad I wasn't engaged in one-to-one discipleship with you because I could tell you'd be confused and you'd be worshiping me. And instead, I want you to be like Jesus. So the problem is the one. When you do one-to-one and one-to-many, the problem is the one. It can go a certain space, it can go a certain distance, but it can only go as far as that one person can go. He can't reflect the fullness of Christ. So that's why we believe that the best way, and the thing that Paul seems to emphasize in Ephesians, is many-to-many. An informal or formal small community where people share their grace with each other. Grace disciples the community as each person shares God's power and love with each other. Now, what I've discovered, and I want to say this is, again, one-to-one, one-to-many are not bad. They exist. There's a place for them. But the thing I've seen in churches is that where many-to-many is taking place, then one-to-one and one-to-many are more effective. And the drawbacks are less. Because if you're engaged in a community where you know that everybody's expressing the grace of God, then when you hear someone teach, you're not under the impression you have to believe or agree with everything that one person teaches because you've already got other influences. And you're not going to become dependent on one person who happens to give you a particular gift because you already got a community of others that are giving you other gifts. So one-to-one and one-to-many are most effective when a church is really keyed in to many-to-many. I've seen some churches where they don't do what we do, and they don't understand the idea of many-to-many, but discipleship is happening because for whatever reason, there are small, informal, unsanctioned communities happening in the church where people are sharing the grace of God with each other. You see them. So what we try to do in focus is we just try to bless that through our organization. We try to say, hey, that's actually what we want. (laughs) We call it official church business when you're in these informal communities. And by doing that, we make them formal, but that's okay. We also believe it happens when those formal communities gather informally in other ways at other times. We believe it happens when communities that are never a formal community gather together and share their grace with each other. It can even happen on a Sunday night to the degree that we allow that. But to facilitate it, because that's my job and our group leader's job, we work really hard to provide these little mini communities where the grace of God can be shared with one another. Do we do it perfectly? Not even close. Are we learning and growing? Yes. Is it exciting to see what God does sometimes through it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's what we call many-to-many discipleship. We seek to create groups in which the leaders are facilitating discipleship, not merely discussion. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as if it were the very words of God. Whoever serves, let him serve by the strength which God provides. 
so that in all things, at all times, our God may be glorified. In Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.